Greetings, Good News Bible Church. I'm happy to be with you guys in spirit. And um, thank you for joining us again this week. Uh, I hope you all are staying safe and healthy at home and you have your necessary provisions. And if you don't, then you would reach out to the leadership team here at uh, Good News Bible Church, any of the pastors and elders. Uh, we've been uh, reaching out to you guys accordingly and making sure everyone's okay, and we pray that continues to be the case. I also want to welcome anyone else tuning in uh, to join us in our service. Thank you. Um, thank you for bearing us with us last week as we uh, were a little late on our video release, had some technical difficulties. But uh, by the grace of God, we were able to get it up and running. Glad you guys were able to enjoy it. Heard a lot of great feedback from you all. And uh, we prepared for this week and want to continue to prepare in excellence and in the best way possible for our Father. Um, we're continuing our series in John chapter 2 right now, the book of John we're going through. And the title of the series is Revealed. All right. And last week we spoke about. Uh, the first uh, section of John, uh, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where I, I spoke and preached about how Jesus made water into wine. And my three points uh, in, in that was that he is available, he has authority, and he was able to create miraculous acts. And we see what he did. He did this in a private setting around people, uh, uh, the private setting of a wedding around people that he knew. Uh, such as family, relatives, friends, and disciples, of course his disciples, and um, we see that he did the stunning act uh, in that setting, and it was marvelous. It uh, led them to uh, reaffirm their belief, um, and I just want to take note of that happening at the wedding, and we're now going to be diving into the second half of John, starting in verse 13, and what we're going to see is that not only did he do that miracle at the wedding, and that was around family and friends, now he's going to uh, have a, he's getting ready to go public with an astonishing act of righteous anger, uh, as we heard about in the scriptures um, just recently. So uh, he's getting ready to make a public uh, statement here. And it's interesting that... Uh, the transition from the intimacy of the wedding, although there were a lot of people, they all knew each other, but now that we see that he is going to do this in a public setting around many, many people in one of the largest events, uh, the largest events that would happen at the time. Um, so I want to ask you uh, a brief question, and this is a question that I want you to ponder upon throughout the message here. It, my question to you today is, how should the church revere the temple? How should the church revere the temple? And as we will uh, unpack, as we go through a message here in the scripture, uh, the temple is referring to both our bodies as a temple, as we read about, and the building of the temple, the temple of the building. So keep that question in mind. How should the church revere the temple? And we want to learn about that and uh, make sure we're responding properly. Let's turn to John chapter 2, verses 13, all the way through 25. We will be reading out of the English Standard Version, and the scripture will be on the screen for you here. So, John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. Here we are. 
The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for, for us? Uh, what, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you continue to keep us safe in our homes and that you help us to trust in you during these times, that you keep us uh, leaning and tapping into your strength, Lord, worryless, and, but still compassionate and caring for what is going on. Lord, as we read in this passage today, I pray that you enlighten us, that you teach us about how we are to treat your temple and we hope that uh, this helps us understand how we are expected to live our lives in hopes that we would bring your, you glory and honor. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I want to start off by giving you some background to what uh, this event was all about, this time, this tradition, this celebration, the Passover. Uh, the Passover was a celebration that took place every year in the Temple of Jerusalem. And every year, uh, every Jewish male was expected to pilgrimage over to Jerusalem during this time. And this was a week-long festival. The Passover was one day, and the Festival of Unleavened Bread was, lasted the rest of the week. And the entire week commemorated the freeing of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. As we, read, as we know about, you can read about in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. So the Passover happened every year. It was a norm. And it always took place, the celebration itself always took place in, in the Temple of Jerusalem. And this Temple in Jerusalem was built nearly a thousand years ago. And it was a sacred place. And this was a sacred time. And knowing that Jesus was obedient and sinless his entire life, the perfect example, uh, he would have uh, been at the Passover uh, every year of his life, as was expected of every Jewish male. So he was obedient. He was there every year of his life. He's now beginning his 
public ministry at 30 years old, and he's showing up to the Passover, but this time he has a statement to make. So the Passover, in verse 13, it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, right? Makes sense? In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, okay? So the normal, normal time for the celebration, he arrives, and what's the problem? As we just heard, he had a reaction, and what was that all about? Why was Jesus so upset? What does verse 14 says? He found them selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. What's the problem? So the problem is that there was actually there's actually several problems. So as I mentioned, this is an annual event and people would travel from all all different cities and, and out from out of the country. And uh, this temple was massive. This uh, celebration was massive. It was very important. It was significant. Uh, there was, there's believed to be uh, in the tens of thousands to twenties of thousands of people uh, arriving here for this event, for the celebration. And people are traveling from all different backgrounds, foreigners. And as they're traveling, part of what they're going to the temple to do, well, the main reason they're going to the temple is to worship. But they come and they bring an animal uh, as a sacrifice, as an offering to the Lord. So if you're traveling from outside of the country, this is a long journey down to Jerusalem, it was inconvenient to bring your own animal, uh, to travel that far, that long. So uh, in exchange for that, or to help with that, uh, the, the Jewish leaders had uh, merchants there selling these different animals for sacrifices. Now, even if you decided you wanted to bring your own animal the distance, you would arrive to the merchants with your animal and it would most likely be rejected for uh, defects or not being suitable uh, for the offering and um, the imperfections of the animal. And so, the, you would be forced to buy their animal anyway. So from experience, people already kind of knew, you go there, you buy the animal, and you're kind of at the mercy of the merchants, which what was beginning to happen was that the merchants were jacking up the prices of their animals, knowing that they were in complete control of the sale. And you arrive, you have to buy this animal for your offering, which is overpriced, instead of being able to have your own, and not only that, if you were a foreigner out of the, out of the country of Israel, you, your currency wasn't accepted. So now you have money changers here available as well. Again, supposed to be convenient. So you go over to the money changers and you want to get the currency so that you can purchase the animal for your offering. And the money changers are taxing you about 10%. And this is a, a, a ridiculous increase so as you can see, there's a lot of shady road business going on here. They're, you're losing money when you exchange your, 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 your money, your currency. You go buy these overpriced animals and you're just trying to go worship your God and, uh, and have this offering. So that was one of the first problems that this posed. 
the, the rogue business that was going on. And they, the Jewish leaders kind of justified it by saying that it was convenient for the worshippers and for the foreigners, and it was uh, helped with the temple upkeep, all right? So they were ignoring the fact that people were uh, being robbed, um, in a sense. And so they, they uh, do, this, this uh, is taking place, the, the animals, and I worked at a, at a bank for many years, and I can tell you that even when there was an exchange rate uh, difference of less than a percent, uh, people were very upset. If you ever out, traveled outside of the country, uh, you'll know that you need to get some uh, foreign currency, and you can do that at the bank here uh, before you travel outside of the country, or you could do it over there. But there's always a difference in that exchange rate, and there's always uh, some uh, slight tax uh, put on that. And it's not much, but people, I witnessed it firsthand, would get upset about that. And they would get upset about the fact that their currency wasn't um, trans uh, uh, transferring at the exact rate that they were seeing online because of the slight tax, the retail tax, uh, which again was probably less than uh, about half, less than a percent. And here it is believed that they are taxing uh, of over ten percent, around ten percent of an exchange. So that that would be very uh, upsetting. But all they're trying to do is worship their God, so they're. They're uh, going through uh, what they have to do. And the other problem here was that the originally the merchants and the money changers were set up outside of the temple. But as time went on, they were pushing into the courtyards. And now they were set up in the courtyards of the temple, which served as a distraction and uh, a disrespect uh, of the temple. Because, again, the main purpose for going to the temple and going to this Passover celebration was to present your offering and worship God. And now not only is there shady business going on, but you are also having this, uh, all this business going on inside the temple area. And it's, it's, uh, it takes away from the, the purpose that people were really there. So it makes sense why Jesus was angry. We start to get a glimpse of what is really going on here and why he was upset. So people are traveling and, and, then, and that's, that brings me to my first point, which is uh, Jesus had concern for the temple and we should have concern for the temple. And we see that because of the activity that there was, that there was going on, uh, it created concern. And Jesus was angry at the dishonest, greedy practices of the money changers and the merchants, and he particularly disliked their presence on the temple grounds. They were making a mockery out of God's house of worship, and that's a problem. That would be a problem any time, uh, any day, but it's, uh, it's, it's especially a problem at the Passover, at the uh, Passover celebration, the biggest uh, celebration of, of the year. So God's temple was being misused by people who had turned it into a marketplace. Marketplace, They had forgotten or didn't care that God's house is a place of worship, not a place for making a profit. Our attitude, so I want to say that our attitude toward the church is that is, is uh, our attitude towards the church is wrong if we see it as a place for personal uh, contacts or business advantage. Make sure you're attending church gatherings for the, for the purpose of worshiping God. And I say that because 
as we see what is going on here, we are seeing that there's different motives and different reasons why people might show up and why people why different activities happening in the church. And I think about our church, Good News, and other churches around, and what activity is actually happening in, in, in our churches, in our church gatherings. What, what is the motive behind some of the things? What is happening with our very own temple? All right? And I want to pause here and talk to you about the concept of a, of a blacklight. We're familiar with an ultraviolet device called uh, a blacklight. A blacklight reveals what is seen to, uh, unseen to the naked eye. You can use it to inspect the cleanliness of your home or clothes. Detectives can use it to resolve crime inspections. Jesus arrives to the temple and sees what no one is, no one sees. He reveals what is truly happening and serves as a blacklight to the temple. Can we have those kinds of lens for our temple bodies, for ourselves, examining ourselves, revealing the true motives behind our actions and desires of the heart? Think of the blacklight. You don't see anything until you turn that on and you see what is really there. Are we examining ourselves under that light? And saying, oh, for, you, know, you were looking beyond the surface and seeing what is really underneath there. Uh, what is really going on with our, our temples. As well as, uh, additionally, having black light lens for the activity that takes place in the temple where we gather. What is the purpose of a particular function or idea we are presenting to our church body? So good news, think of you know, the story and what is happening in the temple and, and imagine that you arrive to your church gathering on Sunday morning and outside of the church building there's valet and as you pay the valet, there's a, there's a charge for it, you pay the valet that doesn't go towards the church, it goes towards the person that is uh, running the valet and they put it in their pockets, they're happy. You, uh, you go inside and you've paid for a seat in the front row uh, for the gathering and that's secured for you and you 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 make sure you paid for that and then you know we what do we do after uh, our church gatherings we typically go downstairs to our uh, fellowship hall and break some bread together have some fellowship and you pay for the meal that you are getting that is secured for you and your family in the area for you to sit down um, now that you know, and all this stuff is going to different people, and you you have to pay for all these things. Now that might sound actually normal for the way some churches uh, uh, are structured, and uh, but to some of you, that might make you angry because what is happening is that everything is about money and business and is structured that way. Uh, and it's not necessarily going to back to the church ministry on top of that. It's going into uh, these people's pockets. And then imagine not only that about the rogue business, but then imagine that you're, you're, you're at your church gathering in the, in the sanctuary, and just outside of our doors here, we have a bunch of clamor and chit-chatter and people negotiating or, or talking about different things, selling different products. Imagine how distracting that would be. And how angry that might make you feel. Like we're we're here, we're gathered here. We should have reverence. We're we're here to worship our Lord. What is, what is going on out there? What is happening? 
everything that we do in our gatherings, in our service, we should, it, it should be an offering to our Lord, an act of worship, and we should examine it through a, as a black light. Wondering, we've, some of you may know, we've talked about setting up coffee just outside of our sanctuary and that area. And what is the motive behind that? Black light. To make money? No, we're not charging. To, so that we encourage believers to show up on time to the gathering. That they would enjoy a cup of coffee here rather than having to go anywhere else. Consequently, making them late, not knowing the line, and among other things. Um, but what if that became a hangout area and became a social space during our gatherings? That would be a problem. So blacklight, everything that we do, think about the motives behind it. Jesus is serves as the ultimate blacklight, and as we see that in this passage here, revealing what is actually going on. Your body is the temple of God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And so ask yourself, is it polluted with things of this world? And if it is, that should create concern which should lead us to our next step, which is point number two, cleansing of the temple. Point number two, cleansing of the temple. We see it says in verses 15 and 16, and making a whip of cords, he drove them out out of the temple with, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house uh, a house of trade. And in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus responds, this problem is happening, and Jesus is passionate about it. He has a problem with it, and he begins cleansing the temple. He makes a whip of cords, it says. There was, as you mentioned, oxen and, and different animals there, and they were likely tied to with ropes to posts and crates and whatever might be there. And as they're selling, there's strings of ropes hanging out everywhere. So Jesus kind of grabs some scraps up, uh, braids it, if you will, and makes a whip out of this and, and begins flipping tables over, upset. This is a big deal. And mind you, there's some talks about whether this was uh, the only cleansing that took place. Um, some people feel that uh, that this was the first cleansing and this was the beginning of his ministry. And then we see it happening again uh, towards the end of his ministry uh, before his crucifixion. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke speak of those events. Um, and some people feel that they are the same event. I hold to the stance that they were two separate events. So in my mind, as I'm reading this, you know, you see Jesus showing up after the wedding and he is going over to to cleanse his temple and he's still not very well known here comes this man and he that starts flipping over tables in the temple and creating a scene and it's pretty astonishing and miraculous in a way that you think about the fact that again there was tens of thousands of people there this was a huge event many people could have gathered up and uh, tackled him when, when he was doing this. People could have tried to uh, constrain him, but we don't see that happening. We see him get questioned, 
And we'll read about that in a bit, but we don't see anyone stopping him. And here comes this man flipping over tables that people are not yet familiar with and, are, and people are running, the animals, he, he makes them all flee. That speaks to the authority that our God has. Amazing authority that, that people would just stand back and be awestruck of what's going on right now. So, which brings me to think, uh, to, to stop and think about his response. He was clearly angry. Is that a problem? Was it a problem that he reacted this way? Certainly not. He had all the right to act this way. It was flagrant disrespect to his father's home. That was righteous anger. We see the coin scattered everywhere and him making a scene and all this is happening, yes. People scattering, running everywhere. But I wanna say this, Jesus was obviously angry at the merchants who exploited those who had come to God's house to worship. And there's a difference between uncontrolled rage and righteous indignation, yet both are called anger. We must be very careful how we use this powerful emotion of anger. It is right to be angry about injustice and sin. It is wrong to be angry over trivial personal offenses. So Jesus was right in his way of acting. He was sinless and we can see his example. And we can, we know that we are given emotions and uh, this was a gift from God. This is how he designed us. But when it's uncontrolled rage, that's when it becomes a sin. And when it's over trivial personal offenses, that's when it becomes a sin. Uh, when it's uh, righteous indignation, righteous anger over injustice and sin, that's okay. And, and we see that in our, in our master. That's actually not, not just okay, but that's what we're called to do. To have concern and to respond to it. To cleanse the temple. Jesus... While Jesus is questioned by the Jewish leaders, we know that Jesus is ultimate, ultimately right in his ways. So we, the, the power of Jesus is revealed in this event, and he's undenied. We see this, and we know we have the benefit of knowing that Jesus is Messiah and who he is already. These people are not yet believers. They don't know what's going on. And while, they, while he was questioned, we know that ultimately his ways are, are right and that he was correct in this action. So that makes me feel and think about the fact that we can see here that Jesus is unmatched, unrivaled, and undeniable. You can't deny his power. You can't deny his glory. He was contested. He was questioned. But we know that his ways are right. And we see that everything he was doing here was a sign of what is yet to come. It was symbolic in nature, and it was uh, something taking place in that very moment uh, as he corrected the problem. So my first point was concern for the temple. Second point was uh, cleansing of the temple. And I also want to remind you that the disciples remembered that this, would, this was uh, written in Psalm 69, verse 9, where David writes, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So these disciples are studious, and they remember, they know their scripture, they know their word. 
and they're able to recall that as they see Jesus reacting and piece things together. What an amazing thing, right? We should, we should too, know our word and know what is happening around us and turn to our word for relevance. So, and also, I, I want to mention in that, that we see a, a commitment to the temple um, in Jesus doing this. He, uh, over time, we see that the temple is something that uh, is important to God, both in the building and in our bodies. And we see this in the scripture. We certainly see it in the scripture. And I want to encourage you to, to persevere, to know that as we have concern and uh, for the temple and we are called to cleanse it, that we should not grow weary. And when we do, we should turn to God, that we should persevere, take heart, and do what is called of us, do what is right, do what is expected of us. So, verses 18, now he gets questioned. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered this. He had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What a, what a miraculous, what a marvelous set of events. The significance of, of this event, of the Passover celebration, what was going on, the, the road business that was going on there, Jesus seeing it, revealing it boldly. Then he finally gets questioned, and what a great response Jesus gives. When he gets questioned, and, and just so you know, they're questioning him because when he's flipping things over, obviously they're questioning him for his actions, but also his statements, if you remember in verse 16, he says, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And to make a comment, to make a statement like that, my father's house, a house of trade, is saying that you're, you're one with God. And for him to speak that way was new to them. They're like, who is this man? What authority do you have? What do you, prove to us, like, what is going on here? No one speaks of him that way, of God the Father. But we know Jesus is the Son of God. And we know he had all the right to respond that way. So the, so the Jews are, are confused and they confront him. And uh, he was, uh, he, they, they asked him that and he, he has the grace to even answer them. They said, what sign do you, show, do you show us for doing these things? He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And to the Jews at the time, that made no sense and it wasn't a response, but he was actually being gracious enough to give them an actual, valid, truthful response to show them a miracle. He was uh, prophesying about the miracle that was going to happen. His resurrection, his death and resurrection in three days, the temple, he spoke of his own body. And he, they questioned him and Jesus could have easily not answered, but he answers and he tells them the truth. And they didn't understand it at the time, but his disciples, disciples later did. So what an amazing thing that Jesus does. And that brings me to my third point, my third and final point, confrontation concerning the temple. 
Jesus was concerned for the temple and what he saw. He, um, he then cleansed the temple. And he was confronted regarding the temple. He was not afraid of that confrontation. So it makes me think about our, our uh, vision here at Good News and the love one another as we talk about having courageous conversations. When we see things that are incorrect in the temple where we gather and in the temple of our bodies, whether it be us or in our brothers and sisters, we are to have those courageous conversations and correct them and cleanse them. Pray that Jesus Christ does the cleansing. But we are not to stay quiet. When we see behavior or actions taken by another believer that violates God's call to live with live a righteous life, we should be courageous enough to confront that brother or sister with meekness instead of ignoring the action and turning the other way. Likewise, we are called to examine ourselves and confront areas that need change by the Holy Spirit. So let's take this serious, guys. Let's take this as serious as Jesus did. Have concern for the temple. Cleanse, examine yourself, examine yourself, your body, your walk with the Lord. Blacklight it. What do you see when you really go deeper beneath the surface? What do you see in the gathering? Speak up with meekness and grace, but with passion about our Father's house. All right? Let's have these courageous conversations. Let's learn from Jesus and what he did here. Jesus, the sign that Jesus gave of his authority to do what he did was his own resurrection. The permanent temple referred to his body. Your body will be a permanent temple for the Lord Jesus. You will be resurrected. Maintain that temple properly now. I encourage you to maintain that temple properly now. So in conclusion, as we see, Concern for the temple equals reverence. I asked you in the beginning, how should the church revere the temple? The church should revere the temple with concern. Concern for the temple equals reverence. Second point was cleansing the temple, which is a call to righteousness, a call to live righteous. Jesus laid out his life and gave us an example and told us to live like him. Cleanse the temple is a call to righteousness. And in that, I ask you that you persevere in faithfulness with commitment. And my third point was confrontation concerning the temple, which means we are unapologetically protective of it and repentant when we are not. Confrontation concerning the temple means we are unapologetically protective of it. We must be protective of the temple. We must have reverence and concern for the things going on in our gatherings, in the building, and more importantly, in our very own bodies, our temples that we offer to God. And when we are not, be repentant of it. So in response to this, this is a charge to re of reverence and righteousness, which was the title of my sermon, a charge to reverence and righteousness, how should the church revere the temple? With concern, with cleansing, and with confrontation concerning the temple when necessary. I encourage you during these times that we have, we may have 
more, a lot more time on our hands than we ordinarily have during the stay-at-home order to examine yourself, to blacklight your life, to have concern for it and confront areas that need to be confronted. Have courageous conversations with one another. Call each other up if there has been offense or if there's been things we see. Let's do it with meekness and kindness, but with passion and zeal. There's a reason why we are called to, to do this. And that is to give God the glory and protect the things of his house. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your passion. We thank you for your desire for holiness. We thank you that you are righteous. We thank you for who you are, for, for your ways, Lord. We know that your ways are higher than ours and we, we trust in your ways and we ask that you teach us to be more like you, that you give us a safe passion and a zeal for your house, Lord, for our bodies that you dwell in. We pray that you give us that passion and zeal for the place where we gather, that we would have reverence for it, that we would respect the activity that is going on, that we would call out things that we see that serve as flagrant disrespect to it. That we would care about your place, your house, Father. That we would care about the temples, the bodies that you've given us until we are with you in our glorified bodies, Lord. We thank you for the gift that you have given us, for your word and your teachings. We thank you because you're a, a God who cares. You care and you're, you're a zealous, Lord. We ask that you help us to live according to your scriptures and the way that you expect of us. Stir us up, O oh Lord. Thank you. In your name we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.